we're going to read today from Isaiah chapter 23, all the chapter. Let's stand to read God's word. Isaiah 23, it reads, An oracle concerning Tyre. Well, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus, Word has come to them. Be silent, you people of the island, and you merchants of Sidon, whom the seafarers have enriched. On the great waters came the grain of the Shire. The harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre, and she became the marketplace of the nations. Be ashamed of Sidon, and you, O fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth, I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. When the word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish to, at the report from Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of reverie? The old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far-off lands? Who planned this against Tyre, the, dis the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth. The Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. Till your land as, uh, as along the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, for you no longer have, have a harbor. The Lord has stretched out his hand over the sea and made its kingdom tremble. He has given an order concerning Phoenicia that her fortress be destroyed. He said, No more of your re reveling, O virgin daughter of Sidon, now crushed. Up, cross over, to Cy cross over to Cyprus. Even there you'll find no rest. Look at the land of the Babylonians, this people that is now of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place of desert creatures, they raised up their siege towers. They stripped its fortress bare and turned it into a ruin. Well, your ships of Tarshish, your fortress is destroyed. At that time, Tyre will be, will be, forgot, will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of the king's life. But at the end of, of these 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take up a harp. Walk through the city, O prostitute forgotten. Play the harp well, sing many a song, so that you'll be remembered. At the end of the seventy years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She'll be, she will return to her hire as a prostitute and, and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her prophets will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. I encourage you to open your, open your Bible and turn with me to uh, the chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. 
Our sermon today encapsulates one of the greatest examples of God's divine grace and forgiving nature. When Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and preach out against it, there's no indication that God has any intention other than destroying the city. Jonah knows that God is gracious and that by telling the Ninevites of their impending doom, they may repent and that God may forgive them. But nowhere in the first two chapters is this made apparent. The only way that we know that Jonah had this in mind is when he ran from the Lord's command in chapter 1 is how he responds to this very outcoming at the beginning of chapter 4. When God spares Nineveh, it makes Jonah displeased, even angry. And he prays to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Is this the response a Christian should have when God is forgiving? When his graciousness shines on others? Why is it that we as Christians try to decide for God who deserves his grace and who doesn't? When you see a homeless person, a drug addict, or even a murderer, is our first thought, I need to tell that person about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I can tell you this, regardless of how we feel about others' transgressions, the great commission given to us by Christ Jesus is not to decide who gets to hear the gospel, but to proclaim it to everyone. All throughout the gospels, we see this reflected in the life of Christ. Even though he knew that his actions would anger the Pharisees to the point of homicide, Jesus was adamant to bring his message to thieves, prostitutes, and tax collectors. Jonah not only didn't want to go among the pagan Ninevites, he decided that they deserved to go to hell, that due to their violent acts, they should be condemned. <clears throat> I realize that the majority of the time, when we shy away from bringing the gospel to a stranger, it is not because we want them to suffer for eternity. But nevertheless, that could be the outcome of our decision. The way that, we, the way that this book of the Old Testament unfolds to show us our own inequities in the reflection of Jonah is masterful. While at the same time the Lord is exalted and the graciousness of his character shines in glory. Let us dive into chapter 3 and start unpacking the scripture. I'm going to start by reading the entire chapter. Jonah's chapter 3 starting in verse 1 reads, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for this time you've given us to learn about you, Father, and learn about your word and learn about how even the word from the Old Testament, Father, from thousands of years ago still reflects us in our life today. Be with us today, Father, and be with me and let your word speak through me, Father, and take me out of the way. Just let your word speak to the people and let them hear what you have to say. We love you so much, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Should God have saved the Ninevites? Did they deserve grace? The real question I want to try to answer today is, do any of us deserve grace? If you think that you do, what have you done to deserve it? We are all born sinners. All of us, have accept, all of us that have accepted Jesus into our hearts and lives had to admit that. So what have we done since then to deserve grace? Of course, the answer is that we don't deserve grace. In truth, there is nothing we can do to earn grace. The Ninevites didn't deserve grace either, nor did Jonah. That is the main point I want to try to impress upon everyone today. No matter what we do, how often we come to church, how much we volunteer, how many people we bring to Christ, there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn God's grace. Grace is the nature of God himself, a gift that he died on the cross to give us. God came to this earth in the form of his son, Jesus the Christ, to live among us, suffer like us, and eventually die for us. Through this perfect sacrifice, God gives us the gift of grace. But never forget that it is a gift, something that we don't deserve and something that we certainly cannot decide if another deserves. Old throughout our scripture today. The first one I want to read is Jonah 3, verse 1 through the first half of verse 3. This scripture shows God repeating his command to Jonah after he was spat out by the great fish. Instead of repeating why he wanted Jonah to speak out against the people of Nineveh, that their evil has come up before God, he tells Jonah to go and call out it the message that I tell you. Starting in Jonah 3, chapter, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, it reads, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Let's stop there for a moment. doesn't wait around for us to be ready, does he? Jonah is still wiping the fish vomit off of him, and God tells him to arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah knows what he is supposed to do. If you remember from my last sermon, at the end of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah prayed to God, what I have vowed I will pay. This is a direct reference to the command of God for Jonah to go to Nineveh. Yet we start chapter 3 with God reiterating his command to Jonah. I wonder if Jonah was already having second thoughts, standing there trying to clean himself up. Have any of you made promises to God during times of great need, praying out to him for help or relief and promising all kinds of things? Oh, how easily we forget or just flat out don't do the things that we have promised. This is never more apparent than our own parenthood. Kids never forget a promise. My oldest daughter Lexi is 18, almost 19, and she still brings up things I promised her a decade ago, quite often. The point is that we all make promises. 
we keep them and sometimes we don't. We're human, and that is a symptom of our condition. You know who always keeps his promises? Our Heavenly Father, the Lord of hosts, Christ Jesus. Just like in the first verse of this book, God begins his command with the word arise. Jonah has been through an unbelievable situation. Imagine being vomited up by a great fish. Yet God doesn't expect him to take some personal time and get ready before going to Nineveh. Why? Notice the difference in God's command this time. Instead of ending the command for their evil has come up before me, this time he ends it with the message that I tell you. The reason for this is apparent in the message that God gives Jonah for the Ninevites. The clock was ticking for them. But more importantly, the longer Jonah waited to go, the more likely he would decide against it and run away again. Have you ever promised God something when praying for help, only to backslide on that promise as soon as the help arrives? We rationalize this by thinking of our circumstances that led to our relief, without any consideration of God's hand in settling these setting these events in motion. I guess the medicine finally kicked in. Or if Uncle Joe hadn't given us that extra money, we have never have made it. I remember right after we had Scotty, we were really broke. I don't remember if we prayed about it, but I can imagine if we had the promises we would have made to God. Everyone from the church was bringing us dinners every night. And the night that Cliff and Alicia brought us food, we found a $100 bill in the box. I can't begin to explain how much that $100 helped us at the time. But I can tell you that we never praised the Lord for bringing us that relief. Several years later, we were talking about it to Alicia when we were in Honduras. And she told us that they couldn't really afford it at the time, but they just felt as if they had to include it with the food they brought us. God was working through them for us, and, and we didn't even know it. We had just started coming to church. We'd only been coming for a few months at the time, and God was already looking out for us, as he always does, even if we're not coming to church, right? You would think that if we had prayed for this and made promises to God fulfilling them, that would have been the first thing on our mind. But the truth is, the longer we go without fulfilling these promises, the easier it is to talk ourselves out of it. The fact is never more apparent than here in the verses 1 and 2. I mean, Jonah was rescued by a great fish, swallowed and then spat out. It's obvious that God knows our human nature so well that he knew, even after this, Jonah could possibly talk himself out of the promise he had made to God, regardless of how miraculous his rescue was. So he graciously reminded Jonah of what to do, and Jonah went. This brings us to Jonah's entrance into Nineveh. Follow along with me as we read from the second half of verse 3 through verse 5 in Jonah chapter 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The scripture here refers to Nineveh as an exceedingly great city, three days in breadth. But according to the footnote in my Bible, the circumference of Nineveh during Jonah's time would not even be a three-day walk. In the research I've done, the, what the Bible was referring to here is the time period it would be customary for a foreigner when visiting such a great city. 
Typically, for a foreigner visiting a great city like Nineveh, the first day would be spent going to register with local magistrates. The second day would be for whatever business they had, and the third day would be to wrap things up and then travel away. But not for Jonah. On the first day, as soon as he walked in the city, he began to call out to the people the message that God sent, God sent with him. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The very next sentence says, And the people of Nineveh believed. Why? Here's this guy, a Jew nonetheless, stinking like fish guts, probably looking very disheveled, and he comes walking into town with a message about the imminent doom of Nineveh. Well, it's fair to conclude that this was not all he said, but it is important to note that sometimes the best way to get to a sinner to repent is to first tell them about the result of their sins and the coming judgment that we will all face. Even though every word that Jonah speaks is not recorded for us in this book, I do believe that every word that God spoke is. God has a plan and knows the message he wants Jonah to tell the Ninevites. He also knows the effect that it will have on the pagan people of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I love this statement. Just as the pagan sailors turned to God following their meeting Jonah, so did the Ninevites. The funny part about this is that this was not Jonah's plan either time, but it was always God's plan. Believed is the pivotal verb in this whole chapter. In believing, they find their way to repentance, which leads to God's mercy. So now that the people of Nineveh believed God, they immediately started repenting by fasting and wearing sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them, from the oldest to the youngest. What an extraordinary impact God had on these people. This was a city of well over 100,000 people. And yet every man, woman, and child believed and repented. They believed. This is a necessary first step in our walk with Christ. For if we don't believe, we will never accept that we are broken, worthless sinners, desperately in need of God's mercy, just as the Ninevites were. It is not enough for us to know about Christ. In order to have a relationship with him, we have to believe him. How could a message from one man spread at such an incredible rate? Look at me with verses, look at me at verses 6 through 9. Jonah chapter 3, 6 through 9 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Once the message from God delivered by his prophet Jonah reached the king of Nineveh, not only did he believe and repent, but he also decreed that the entire city do the same. He even went so far as to tell them not to let their animals eat or drink and to cover the beasts with sackcloth also. Can you imagine President Trump telling everyone in the country the same thing? 
And more incredibly, that everyone believed in God enough to do it. And these weren't Israelites. These weren't God's chosen people who lived and breathed the law of Moses from birth. These were pagan, murdering Assyrians. Jesus makes similar references often in his parables about foreigners, tax collectors, and other undesirable people. Luke records a great example of this in chapter 17 of his gospel. Uh, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Luke 17, starting in verse 11, says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria, Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they, <clears throat> as they, went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Some of the lepers in this parable were no doubt Israelites who after being cleansed of this terrible disease just turned and left and didn't even, you know, didn't take it upon themselves to thank God. But the Samaritan of the bunch realized how gracious this mercy was and turned and went and worshipped his Savior. Jesus makes it a point to show that those who seem to be the furthest from the kingdom of God are most of the time the most likely ones to believe that he is the Christ and above all else they need his mercy no matter how undeserving people think they are people as in us and other Christians and other people that are judgmental the fact of the matter is the more we think that we have earned our spot in the kingdom of God that we deserve it the easier we make it for Satan to claim our eternal soul this is the danger of mega churches in the prosperity gospel. People want to hear that they are going to heaven. People want to hear that going to church, tithing, volunteering when they can, or teaching a class, <clears throat> basically being a good Christian, has secured them their place in heaven. Prosperity preachers know this, and this is what they talk about. People come away from their sermons feeling great about themselves and secure in their eternal soul. They tell others how wonderful they feel and invite them to church, all the while walking a path straight to hell. Let me reiterate this point and drive it home, loved ones. We do not deserve God's mercy. That is why it's called mercy. That is why it is a gift. God has mercy on us because he loves us, not because we deserve it. What the Ninevites do in their repentance would be amazing, even if Jonah had added the words, unless you repent, in the front of God, God's message. But look at verse 9 with me. After making his decree, the king ends with, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king orders everyone to turn from their violence and evil ways and repent, 
just in the hope that maybe God will turn from his fierce anger. And of course, that was God's plan all along. He saw their amazing response to his message and let them live. Let's take a look at the last verse of Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 reads, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Most people, when thinking of the book of Jonah, or if you ask them about the book of Jonah, <clears throat> consider him finding salvation and, and living in the belly of a great fish the miracle of the book of Jonah. And while this is miraculous, no doubt, it pales in comparison to 120,000 people coming to belief in God in such a dramatic fashion. Considering the message that God gave Jonah to bring to the people of Nineveh and the fact that they repented, God relented and did not overturn Nineveh. It would seem that God changed his mind. <clears throat> but does God really ever change his mind? Of course not. If one who is all-knowing and perfect decide, decides on a course of action, it would not make sense for him to change his mind. Regardless of how our human brains interpret the sequence of events, God knew what he was doing and how everything would turn out every step of the way. He knew before he first called Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh that he would run to Tarshish. He knew that Jonah forcing the pagan sailors to murder him by throwing him overboard would lead to their conversion. And likewise, he knew how profound the effect of his message would have on the Ninevite, would be on the Ninevites. Even though the fact of the matter ultimately is that God knows everything and including the future, we still have free will to make our own choices. The Ninevites could have chosen to kill Jonah and keep on doing the evil things they have always done. How often do we ignore warnings? You know the yellow signs on the, on the road that show the speed limit for a corner. My wife laughs, of course. I wrote this thinking of her. They're usually quite a bit slower than the speed limit for the road you're on. And the yellow sign that means it's a recommended speed for the corner. How often do you slow down to this recommended speed, even though it's there for your own good and it's there to keep us safe? I know even I don't usually slow down to exactly what it says. Of course, this is not a divine message from a prophet of God, which we would all listen to, right? Of course. God allows us to make our own decisions for better or worse. Look with me in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, starting in verse 6. Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 6, it reads, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, 
then I will relent of the good I have intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. The bottom line is that God is in control. He is sovereign over us and this earth. He is also a loving and gracious father to us all. But just as he commands us to honor our father and mother, we must first and foremost honor our eternal father. The book of Jonah is only four short chapters, 48 verses in total. Considering its presence in a book that is over 2,000 pages long, it would seem rather insignificant. But the message of the book of Jonah is profound, and for me, while studying for these sermons, has been life-altering. This Hebrew prophet goes into a city roughly the size of Weatherford and delivers a message of destruction to the people there. We are given a message from God to deliver as well. The message that Jesus took all of our sin and suffered a terrible death on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for all of us. That because of this we are given the gift of grace and that accepting Jesus will cause a life-changing conversion in our lives. Do we deserve it? No. Did we earn it? Of course not. Does that restrict us from grasping it? No, it doesn't. That is the amazing thing about grace, the grace of God. He has mercy on us regardless. And thank God for that. Just imagine if we actually had to earn grace. What amount of good works would it take to wipe away all of our sin? What about future sins? For every sin we made amends for, there would be a new one to take its place. The Old Testament taught God's people that we can't do it on our own. God's grace is a gift that we don't deserve and that we could never earn. The people of Nineveh were the epitome of evil. The only thing that they had earned was a brutal destruction on par with Sodom. Yet God has mercy on them, just like he does for us every day. This is the infinite power of grace. Finally, in closing, I want to reiterate that the source of this grace comes from the fact that God loves you. He loves us enough to offer grace regardless of our past transgressions. But like every gift in life, we must accept it to receive it. I beg you, loved ones, if you haven't searched your heart and accepted this gift, don't wait. It is the most important decision that you will ever make. And while most of us feel like we have forever to commit to Christ... The truth is not, not a single one of us have any idea of how much time we have left. The only thing that we can know for sure is that death will come for us all eventually. Please don't run the risk of being too late. If you have any questions, I would love to talk with you after church, as I'm sure Pastor Justin would as well. There are these steps also. If it has been on your heart... Please come up here and accept the gift that Christ Jesus offers us all. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time, Father. And just thank you for these people. 
let this message impress upon their hearts the urgency that we should all have to not only accept Christ ourselves, but to help others see how and why to accept Christ. To accept this gift of grace, Father, that you've offered us unwittingly against our own human will, Father. A gift that we honestly don't deserve. Just be with us and, and continue to show us the reasons why we have to accept this gift and why it's so important that we talk to others and be with the others that we love and even strangers, Father, even people that, like the Ninevites, do evil things in front of us. Those are the people that need you most and help us to not be afraid or discouraged or too shy to talk to them about you, Father. Give us the passion and the willingness to talk to you, to talk about you to everyone. The passion that Jesus had when he was on this earth to spread his word to tax collectors and other people who were doing evil things at the time. Watch over all of us this week, Father. Heal those who need your healing and just be with us and protect us. I ask all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.